0: All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. 101 part-time jobs, 101, part-time jobs, 101, part-time jobs, 101, part-time jobs. All right, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. It's the podcast where I speak to some very talented folk about the different stages they've been at with their music over their time doing it, as well as some of the stories from their old careers. On today's episode, we're very happy to welcome Steve Mason, who this Friday releases his fifth solo record, Brothers and Sisters. He's going on tour with the band this spring. That's hitting Birkinhead, Sheffield, Oxford, Leeds, Sunderland, Glasgow, Manchester, London, Nottingham and Brighton from towards the end of April into May. The record sounds brilliant and I think with a full band those live shows are gonna be excellent. Cheers for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs supported by 2000 Trees Festival which is a great independent rock festival in Cheltenham just a few hours away from London. They've been making new band announcements for the last week and today they've announced some more including American Football, Employed to Serve, Prima Queen, Military Gun, Bat Sabbath, and loads more. That's on top of Frank Hart and the Rattlesnakes, 100 Reasons, Rival Schools, The Bronx, loads of brilliant bands heading to 2000 Trees this July. If you want to go but haven't got your ticket yet, you can go to 2000treesfestival.co.uk and if you use the voucher code 101pod when you're buying a ticket outright you can get 20 quid off the price which is basically free money if you know you're going anyway the instalment plan ends at the end of tonight if that sounds more sensible yeah 2000treesfestival it's brilliant thanks again for listening here's Steve Mason on 101 part-time jobs go well cheers look <laughs>
1: As an artist, you have to sort of accept that you're you're not in it for the money, you know, and so you have to just uh, live live with the fact that you are probably always going to be skint, and you're not going to be able to afford to do things that other people can do. People who have um, job, you know, even just normal jobs, or especially not well-paid jobs. You have to accept that you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to go on holidays. You're not going to be able to have, um, you know, um, a nice new car. You'd be very lucky if you can afford to buy a house uh, or get a deposit together for a house. And you have to live very much hand to mouth, and you have to kind of, I guess, have the courage to be able to do that. And which is very easy uh, when you're younger, but the but it becomes less easy when you get older. For for many different reasons, but the most obvious reasons in my case being that I'm now married and I have a five-year-old daughter. So we you have people relying on your income, there's a lot more pressure and it's it's quite, it feels like quite an intimidating situation to, to be in, with, when, with within which still to attempt to be creative. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always, I guess, been most creative when I'm kind of, I don't necessarily need to be happy, but there needs to be a certain element of stability. So yeah, I mean it's just kind of th- that side of it is 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 one part of it. But then I guess the other the other part of it is just that that drive, the thing that drives you on, which is loving the creation of brand new art and trying to consistently surprise yourself and push forward and better what you've already achieved, and add to the the, the sort of greater canon of work of 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 of, of artists globally um, and hope when the books are opened up your name will be in the the books as someone to uh, take note of
0: it's brilliant speaking to someone like you with such a canon such like a, a deep pocket of tunes and records and real experiences and the impacts that you've had on people's lives you know the soundtracks and the feelings that mm. that you've given people. I mean, I wonder how much you've been able to kind of ruminate on that and kind of identify identify that fire inside of you that you have to do this thing and try and protect it. You know, have there been times throughout your life that you've had to be forced to protect it and prioritise that?
1: Really, what you're talking about only really happened to me um, in, in the sort of time preceding the writing of Brothers and Sisters. So... Uh, the, the the album uh, the previous album to this one was called about the light and I, and I and I got Stephen Street to produce that because I'd, I'd just become a dad I just got married and I really wanted somebody who was um, really competent knew what they were doing um I, I sort of wanted to be a bit less hands-on and I suppose someone that was gonna help me potentially create something that might get played on the radio but then going into this one I realized that potentially going down that road of chasing radio plays and um, and kind of becoming a, a, um, I guess potentially a reactionary maybe was it, it wasn't me and it was and it was a mistake and um, and that's not you know that's not that's no um, I'm not in any way having a dig at what what, what Steven street did whatsoever I wanted them to come and he did exactly what I I wanted but I just felt personally as an artist uh, if you deviate from the path of truth uh, with respect to your art then you're never gonna really achieve anything except the destruction of your own art so really um, I guess uh, I had to sort of have a word with myself and really work out what it was I wanted to do whether I wanted to stop and um, try and do something else, get a job. I don't know, something else. For the first time ever since I've dared to call myself an artist, I I was being tested. You know, Did, did did I really want to do it? Did I really want to do it to the point where I was prepared to, you know, carry on living in a way which is hand to mouth, carry on living in a way which is somewhat precarious? For the love of music, and for the love of what I might be able to achieve and might be able to do, or was I just going to pack in at that point? And I mean, I mean, not necessarily take an easier route because trying to get a job, you know, is uh, very, very difficult anyway. So I had to sort of really decide what it was I wanted to do, and then once I decided that I didn't want to give up, I didn't want to stop, then I had to again realize that I had to remember what it's like to to be an artist, and I have to rem- and, and that kind of. And, and decompartmentalize the family situation and just start, because what I used to do, you know, before I had any responsibilities, I spend a hell of a lot of the week sitting around daydreaming or watching films or just thinking or, um, or doing nothing. And then there'd be kind of bursts in the sort of, you know, from sort of 10 p.m. till 4 a.m. You know, mm-hmm. and I'd stay up doing that, but you I can't. You can't live like that when you when you live in a house with a, in, with a family. You can't live like that. So you have to. You have to sort of. And I'd never really compromised my living in any way. I'd never had to because I'd always kind of pretty much lived on my own. Pretty much. So yeah, you have to. You have to learn to compromise. I mean, yeah, you have to learn to compromise, and you have to learn that compromising in certain areas doesn't dilute your art and then you have to realize that the areas where you where your art is not being diluted are the things that you need to kind of amplify and and shine a light on and embrace those things with as much vigor as is possible that Wait,
0: yeah that's a great great answer thank you so much for getting into this you know cuz cuz i realize that this conversation by nature you know it kind of requires you to dig deep really after About the light and you know whether you know when when you when you decided that you did want to do the next record, when you decided you did want to do what was going to become and what is brothers and sisters, were there you know, you you talked about okay, well, what do I want to do? Were there any kind of prerequisites or any kind of specific points you wanted to to do in yourself? You know, you know, you talked about making record for radio play, and you realized that's not. Your, the truth of your path, what, what what is the truth of your path? Are you able to define that? Have you been able to articulate that? I think the truth
1: of my path would be what I believe should be the, the path of, of all artists, which is not allowing any external forces to come in uh, during the, the process of making the art and diluting it in, in, in any way or tampering with it in any way. Um, so for example, I mean, um, I mean, an example that artists, that people that make music, have to bow down to whoever they are, whether it's me or whether it's you know Wu Tang Clan or whether it's Radiohead or whoever it might be, is explicit words being bleeped on the radio. I've got a track out at the moment called People Say, mm. and it's been played on the radio quite a lot. And um, there's a line in it which goes, and when I look you in the eye, it's time for fighting. I never really thought too much about that, but somebody like the BBC might go, well, you know, there's a war on at the moment, Mm -hmm. uh, fighting. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't want to remind people that there's a war on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, despite the fact that they might see it on the BBC News and hear about it on the BBC News. I remember when, um, during the first Gulf War, or oh, during during the first illegal invasion of Iraq, massive attack were forced by 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 radio to change their name to Massive.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Which um yeah, they were so so the so the radio so the DJ would go on here's massive with unfinished sympathy. You know you got a massive war? and um just 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 massive compromise. <laughs> um you know, but I guess um but you know, I mean, I you know that's that's no indictment on on them whatsoever, you know. But you know, so you so so you have to sort of, I guess, pick your battles, and you have to realize what's important, what what what's not important. And so, I don't think that's answered your question. Though, what was? Could you repeat your question again, please?
0: I think that based, that really does answer my question because you know, talking about not compromising, and what it makes me think of is uh times in in my life as a writer as a journalist where i've you know you you get stuck in what's expected of you uh rather than you know the pure source or that kind of thing that i think it's almost like a waste of time to try and define that pure source because you are it you know you can't really define your personality we're all different we all have our unique parts that i think it's sort of more fun really to not try and define it i mean you know you said something really interesting earlier which is you you said from the time that you dared call yourself an artist do you remember that what that time was and and have you had different stages of your life that you thought no i don't want to define myself as that or and then you know at times that changes and you're like okay well i am because that's what that's what I'm here for. You know, that's where I find joy in life. What, what's your story of acknowledging that you're you're an artist? Well,
1: I was the last real job that I had was I was a car mechanic, and so up to the point where I I um, I stopped doing that, I'd been hanging around the previous year with some artists from the um, the Edinburgh Art College, John McLean, and. Uh, Robin Jones and uh, Sean McCloskey and and Gordon Anderson. And so in my social life, I sort of was just surrounded by that kind of weird version of masculinity, which I guess people these days call this toxic masculinity, which is, you know, talking about certain, talking about women in a certain way, uh, being homophobic, being racist, you know, having this really sort of puffed up, hard man persona and um, drinking, spitting, you know that kind of uh, ludicrous version of, of maleness. And I wasn't like I wasn't like that, but people I knew and and I'd, I, you see I saw it everywhere you know and but it just it just it just seemed like even at the time when it was when it was kind of like the norm, it seemed ludicrous and really pathetic, just a cul-de-sac of development as a human being. <laughs> so when I started hanging around with art, with with real artists, with painters and poets and uh, sculptors and, and musicians, I sort of had this epiphany that I realised that, um, because those people that, that I sort of knew in my social life and stuff, you know, they would completely pour scorn on anyone if you talked about your feelings or anything like that, let alone write a song. I mean, they all, they all listen to music. And I was just thinking, well, where the fuck do you think this music comes from? Do you think it comes from yeah. some f- fucking he-man racist down the pub? Who's, I mean, you'll sit around listening to the specials. You think the specials, you know, you think Terry Hall doesn't talk and think about his feelings, Yeah, you know? And so I realized um, that the, the artists were the brave ones. They were the ones to be admired. They were the ones who were putting everything on the line and 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 talking fearlessly about their feelings and about and about how they saw the world and uh, in in a, in a way that was so brutally honest that it was very disarming and i think that ever since i sort of realized that i started doing that myself and i've always used that as a as a way to disarm people, I suppose is to just be incredibly honest. And so I, so I show people very early on that I'm very unafraid to talk about how how I feel, how I feel about them, how I feel about me, how I feel about the situation, how I feel about what they're saying. Um, because I think it's, I just want people to know very quickly that I'm, I'm just not interested in bullshit. I just want to have an open and honest conversation. And if you don't want to have that with me, that's fine but you are going to have to walk away from me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. So you were a car mechanic. What age was that? Uh, I think it was a car mechanic from about
1: uh, 16 to about sort of uh, 20, 21, maybe something like that, I think.
0: Now that's a good skill to have, especially if you're You're about to start going on tour.
1: Well, it was, it was. But the the problem is that when I was a car mechanic, it was still very much um pre-electronics so it was it was about you know setting points and you know the, the old school way of uh of servicing a car but just as sort of as i as i was quitting you know engine management systems were coming in and everything was becoming much more electronically controlled so i could work i could certainly do a few shifts at a classic car garage but not not really at a modern day garage So I quit being a car mechanic in um uh, 90, or ninety-three, moved to London in ninety-four, and then we and then we got signed in ninety sort ninety six or ninety
0: seven that you know that change of life from coming down to london you know what was that move for do you remember you know your emotions then do you remember how you were feeling about that your first impressions maybe
1: i um i was i was dating um a girl at the time from glasgow and she had she'd got on a um she'd become a student nurse she she was going to um Dolich College so she was going down she was she'd, she'd moved there so I was going down sort of once a month by by kind of nine, 1993 I was going down there once a month pretty much anyway so so I kind of um, knew what knew what to expect but I it just when when you're that age it's such a great time to go to London because you can put up with anything you know if you if you're living somewhere shit then It doesn't matter because you don't care because you're in London and you want to be in London. And um, also it was great back then because you had a fully functioning social security system. So you could get the dole and you could get um, housing benefit. So if you had if you managed to get sort of two or three hundred pounds for the deposit, you could have a flat and you could have your flat paid for. You, you could just spend all your time writing and learning how to write songs and trying to start a band and all that kind of stuff. So um, it was a really different world back then compared to what it is now. I think London was everything I expected it to be. I went there to meet people from different cultures and to be exposed directly to some of the music that I loved and and, and to just fully immerse myself in, in I guess more modern youth culture, what was actually happening at the time so um it was it was great it was a great place to be and i don't ever regret um making that move you know i would have been i mean i i I, I still know people now that have been stuck their their entire lives in in the places where i was from and um and uh, i'm you know that's great that's great for them if they like it but i think even just from a personal development point of view you know it's it's good to have you know i mean i I, the first place where, where that i lived at in london was um, this old Jamaican couple in Brixton, and they had the so they had they had a house, and they they were basically renting out the top the top half of the house to me and my girlfriend, and they lived in the bottom house. And even just even just that, just sharing a, a sort of a, a space with with them, you you just learn so much about about you know a culture that you don't really know anything about. I mean, I knew the music, but you know you don't know that you don't you know you don't know, and it was. Um, it was it was great, and being being in Brixton at that time as well was was great. You know, mostly it was still a bit uh, still a little bit dangerous. Yeah. But again, when you're young, you don't really you don't really care about that either. It's exciting. So,
0: which music halls, which music venues, or or bands do you remember from from that time?
1: To be honest, I've I've never really been a big gig person. I've been to a lot of clubs, um, but I haven't really been to see that many bands. I was always much more kind of club person but we used to go to um we used to go to a place called the Mars Bar which was opposite where the Astoria was so if you <clears throat> on the corner of the Astoria there was a little street tiny little street that runs down towards Soho Square and right. at the top of that street kind of opposite the where the Astoria used to be there was a little club there down and you went downstairs there and we used to go there we used to go Talvin Singh he started okay. up a club as well we used to go we used to go to that rails near uh, Houston. brilliant really nights. Nice there was a night there called um, the frat shack and that was probably the best club i've ever been to in my life it was just a crazy <laughs> mix of people there was sort of a lot of the mods used to go there and then a lot of the kind of rockabillys used to go as well and, and and every sort of subculture around around that because they played a sort of w- within a sort of fairly tight framework. They played a huge amount of music within that framework, which brought in kind of a very strange um, a mix you just wouldn't find anywhere else. Like you'd never, yeah. back then you'd never get mods going to a rockabilly club and vice versa or, you know, and there, and there was that whole kind of medway scene thing, which had spilled into London as well. And you had uh, Liam Watson, who at that time had a studio in Old Street, and so you had that whole uh, tow rag kind of scene going on, and that was part of it. And that was an amazing, just an amazing club. That. One
0: jobs. jobs. You've talked about how after heroes to zeros that you, you had a you had a depressive time because you owed a lot of money to the label and that that must have been a very confusing time you'd had this pretty amazingly effective career to so many people and that still carries on today i mean i suppose my question is you know when did you come through that fog when did you come through that the other side of that dense period where it was, um, you know, not so much of an enjoyable part of, of your life? Uh, well,
1: I mean, the depression I had lasted from about probably 1993
0: to about 2010. <laughs>
1: right, right. So yeah, I had to, I had to, throughout the whole of the beat band I was really, really struggling with my mental health and with depression and stuff. So yeah, the whole, I mean, I, I sort of, I, around the time of, um, Heroes to Z- uh, Hot Shots Two. I went on antidepressants, which levelled, which levelled me up qu- quite a bit. But still, it was there was, there was still issues. But it, but but they definitely helped for a for, for for a period. But if you're asking me when I sort of managed to get out of um, the depression thing, um, I guess it was probably about um, seven or eight years ago. Really, really, actually, properly managed to put it to bed and. You know, and uh, and deal with everything that was that was sort of uh, cause the, the the causes of that and put those things to bed. But it was partially because I did a lot of work on it, and partially I think age really helped me just getting older and my mind slowing down and not being quite so dramatic and teenage about everything. You
0: know, I find that really interesting that you were writing all through that time because, um, you know, I've had troubles with with similar types of stuff and i find it i found it really hard to write with it other times i've had i found it hard to write without it you know it's Mm -hmm. kind of fuck it's so yeah it's great that you were writing the whole the whole time that that's amazing um thanks so much i really appreciate we got four minutes left sorry it doesn't feel very nice rushing but thank you so much for your time steve i really appreciate it pleasure i like to end these interviews with um You know, I think there's a massive culture of thinking you're the best. You're talking about the masculinity thing, like, you know, you never fuck up at work. You never make mistakes. You're always the best at what you do. And and like people try and hide their mistakes, especially in the workplace. I wondered if you've got any uh, gaps or any kind of errors that you've that you've made in the workplace. I suppose at this point in your life, there, there could be ones to do with playing music. But does anything come to mind? To be honest,
1: I've learned far more from my mistakes than I ever have any victories I've ever had. I think people completely underestimate making mistakes and making wrong decisions and getting in the shit as a way to move forward. Um, The idea that um, everything is perfect all the time and everything's great, well, that's just some marketing man's fucking wet dream. Life is not like that. So you have to embrace these things you have to embrace the mistakes embrace the, the, the stupid things you do embrace the fact that you might have said something which hurts someone it gives you a chance to, to apologise to them and be and be a bigger person and you learn far, I'm just repeating myself but you learn far more from your mistakes than you will ever learn from any victories you ever have
0: that's a great message thanks so much Steve <laughs> take easy nice okay. to meet you you too you. bye bye
1: see ya bye
0: that was Steve Mason here on 101 Part-Time Jobs his new album, Brothers and Sisters, is out this Friday. catch him on tour this spring. See you later this week with a new episode with Jen Cloa from Australia. See you then. Here's Cox Barra.
2: I've been working on the side, around like a blue